0: Yeah
1: Welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. And that was Iggy Pop and Lust for Life. I've got the huge pleasure to welcome Tony Fox Sales here today, who featured on Lust for Life as the bassist. And Tony's got an incredible talk coming up in March next year in the UK and Ireland playing Lust for Life live. A huge welcome, Tony.
2: Thank you so much. Good to see you. Thanks for inviting me.
1: I was so excited when I saw. This tour was announced, not only because of the idea of recreating the album live, but actually the musicians that you brought together.
2: Uh, well, we've got, uh, you know, it's it's funny. I haven't even met all the people in the band yet, but uh, Kevin Armstrong, who uh, sat in with Tin Machine for a while and did some gigs with us and, of course, worked with David Bowie. Kevin is involved uh, playing guitar and... Uh, as musical uh, coordinator, I guess he would be his title. It sort of just came together, right? Uh, Tom Wilcox from uh, counter counterculture called me and said, listen, now uh, would you be interested in doing a 45 year tour uh, about the lust for life? And I said, that sounds great. You know, I, I think I could be doing that. And he said, so let me get back to you. So he called me back about an hour later and said, listen, instead of the 45 year tour, Less would like to. Can we just do a Tony Sales tour? I said, Well, I know him. I can get a hold of him real quick, you know, and we can do that. So then he said, uh, uh, Kevin has put together a, a, a band here for you. And uh, he ran down the player. soon. It sounds great. So I said, Let's do it. So I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, I haven't played myself in 45 years, you know, but it'll, it'll be great. What a drummer you've got as well. Clem Burke. Yeah. Clem uh, is going to be involved. I've, and I had worked with Clem with a band called Checkered Past with uh, Steve Jones and uh, My, Nigel Harrison and Clem Burke, uh, Nigel Harrison from Blondie with Clem. And uh, we hadn't worked together in a while, but uh, we're good friends. And and it's uh, going to come on board. That's
1: great. Yeah, it's going to be good. I've uh, spoken to Michael Debar a few times Uh about that period, and uh, yeah, so maybe it's worth covering your
2: memories of
1: the build-up to Lust for Life.
2: Uh, well, prior to recording Lust for Life, yeah, we we, uh, i mean I was uh, I'm friends with James Williamson, who played guitar with the Stooges, and James and I. I mean, this was going back to 1974, 75, and uh, James and I were were, uh, you know, running around Los Angeles, and uh, you know picking up women and getting high and doing that whole thing. And I, mean, I was a young guy. And, and one day he said to me, listen, um, Jimmy Iggy is going over to Berlin to uh, do a, something with David. And I said, gee, that's great. You know, that's, that's wonderful. I'm happy for him. That's wonderful. And I mean, I knew, uh, Jimmy, and, and I had met David a couple of times in New York when I was working with Todd Rundgren at, uh, where I, now I forget the name of the bar. It was with the Andy Warhol crowd was, uh, David came in one night and I met him there. I shared an attorney with uh, Bowie and and so he called me and he said, you know, uh, I got a call from David and uh, uh, Iggy had played him an album called Kill City or something. He said, who are those two black guys singing background? And and he said, that's not black guys. That's the sales brothers. And he said, oh, get them over here, you know. So they called us and asked us to come over to Berlin to do uh, the album. They had already released The Idiot. Uh, album and uh, they were looking to do something else and uh, they didn't know it was going to be called Less for Life but uh, we went over to uh, the Hansa studio by the Berlin Wall at the time the The rehearsals for the uh, the first tour with Iggy
3: mm. were
2: at a uh, film studio called UFA which is a Nazi propaganda studio in Berlin. Wow. It was Hitler's film studio. He did uh, the film M there and uh, a lot, I guess, a lot of his propaganda stuff. Uh, there were file cabinets behind a curtain in the room. David and I went through these file cabinets, and there was all kinds of stuff in them. I mean, I get, you know, they had to have uh, gone through everything. I mean, you know, the war was whatever. I guess thirty years, thirty-five mm-hmm. years somewhere. That was 1977, so it's uh, still relatively recent way- in
1: a way. Yeah,
2: which is a, seems like a really short time, you know. And in, in the we pulled into this uh, studio UFA and into their parking lot, and there were Nazi uh, statues of Nazi soldiers standing around the parking lot. We all went, "Jesus Christ!" You know, it was like the Twilight Zone, you know. But it was really something. It was uh, it was uh, quite impressive. Left an, <laughs> an indelible mark on me. It was good. They were rehearsals for us. That the band had just gotten together, we were playing some Stooges songs and uh, just jamming around a little bit. It was for us to get acquainted with each other musically, and uh, I still have a, uh, a cassette wow. of one of those rehearsals somewhere. And uh, yeah, it was David was on uh, keyboards and Hunt uh, on drums and myself on bass and uh, Rick Gardner on guitar, and uh, just in a in a small uh, soundproof studio. And uh, it was great It was really a great experience And those live dates It said that David took more of a, a backseat on
1: those shows So that material was captured in the, the TVI live album
2: as well uh, Well, he, he, you know, in, in so much as he was uh, playing piano I mean, he was sitting behind <laughs> a keyboard And, uh, you know, I mean, a, a backseat I mean, he was uh, It's kind of hard for him to take a back seat to anything But, uh, you know he uh, didn't stand in in uh, Jimmy's way at all. I mean, he he was there because he really admired Jimmy's work and uh, he wanted to be part of it. So he, he you know, he and Iggy had uh, their discussion about business and what they wanted to do. You know, which was uh, none of my business. I didn't didn't make that my business, but uh, I knew that they had a their master plan together. But uh, there was never no, never any uh, any stuff that Happening on the road or any of the gigs that uh, that I remember of any note that uh, he wasn't taking back seat, you know? Yeah. So it's pretty easy, really.
4: Yeah! You gotta stop on a bitch. On a Do you see
0: that cow? Yeah, I do mean you
4: Do you see that cow?
2: Recorded and mixed the album in about six weeks, I think. Might, might have been even less than that. We had just uh, played in this studio, in the rehearsal studio, and we'd go into this, into the recording studio, into Hansa, and uh, run through the song a couple of times and then just put it down. It was pretty thrilling to watch uh, Iggy uh, working because he would come up with lyrics on the spot. And he would, uh, and he was thrilling uh, David as well. He he would just he would do a whole stanza of, st- of lyrics, and, and he go, "No, I don't want to do that. Let's do I'll do something else." And he'd come up with a whole other thing right away, you know. And it was just, uh, it was very creative. It was inspiring, and uh, that's that's why I'm a musician.
1: A great example of that is The Passenger in terms of those lyrics. Yeah. It's said online, and it's it's always useful for me to sort of check the accuracy of things online, that uh, Iggy was in, inspired by the approach that your father, known as Soupy Sales, had in terms of... Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, 25 yeah. words or less. Yeah. Soupy had a, a segment in his show that says it was Soupy Says. So he'd go up to this blackboard on the wall, and he'd say, OK, th- now today's Soupy Says... Be true to your teeth, and they'll be false to you. People that eat sweets take up two seats. I mean, just his throwaway lines we said. But uh, so I want you to write down twenty-five words or less. Whatever it was, he would ask, would ask the kids, you know. And and actually, uh, Jimmy came up to me and he said, uh, you know, your dad. he was. Uh, just such an inspiration to me when he started the 25 words or less thing he said i just blew my mind i couldn't believe that you know and so i actually brought soupy uh when we played new york years later i asked soupy if he would introduce us at the academy of music there wow uh, with iggy so soupy came and and uh, uh introduced iggy at the academy of music he hadn't, iggy hadn't met him so he, he wanted to meet him so i brought him to the theater there and he enjoyed it very much
4: Sides. We'll see the bright and hollow sky We'll see the stars that shine so bright A Stars made for us tonight It is ripped back sides This is a winding ocean drive
1: to the idiot where david had more of a role in in terms of the music this was an album where there was a bit more opportunity for jimmy or iggy to sort of dig back to a bit more to a stoogey sound like on tracks like 16
2: yeah it was a little it was a little uh a little more caustic than the uh, idiot i think uh I mean, wh- whichever way Iggy wanted to go. I mean, David was a big fan of his, so he was ready to go that way. I think that he, David, polished it a little bit. You know, he polished the production and and that. Uh, I don't think he took out the essence of the uh, energy, though, which was great. There's a lot of energy on Lust for Life, of course. And, and uh, it's uh, just uh, the, the basis of uh, Jimmy's music, like raw power. You know, we used to pay, play that in the set. From the uh, Stooges' days.
1: And Hansa Studio as well is now revered as a, a
2: very special place. It's like a landmark there, yeah. I mean, when we were recording, there were still guards up in the towers on the other side of the wall with machine guns. You know, we'd go out and just sort of stand there and drop our pants in, at them, and they, you know, were kind of pissed off. But we, uh, uh, it, it was wild, and It was just uh, a strange time. I, I went back recently to do a, a, uh, Actually, we—I think we did. Uh, Supergrass was there, and uh, uh, I went back to uh, to do a, a little bit of a film, and uh, we did *Lust for Life*, wow. and uh, the guys on Supergrass performed it with me. on was on bass, and I hadn't been to uh, Hansa since recording *Lust for Life*, and it was—it's uh, incredible. They still have at Hansa; they've got a uh, acetate recording to acetate. Wow, which is. Fantastic! You know, you get the sound, absolute, the true sound, absolutely from the instrument through the amp right there, without uh, any kind of noise, tape noise, or hiss or anything else. It's uh, what you're uh, performing. You get right on acetate. It's uh, it's great. You can hear it right away, and uh, they've got one of those machines there. It's quite a, an eclectic place. It's just fantastic. You know, they've recorded orchestras there, and Iggy, and U2, and uh, the number of uh, different uh, genres that they've had through those Hallard halls—it's wild, you know—it's—it's uh, it's quite a place. <laughs>
1: berlin at the time was literally surrounded by east germany in a, a communist or totalitarian state uh, yeah what was the atmosphere like in, in west well, berlin i mean a lot
2: said about the night it was well it was like uh it was pretty corrupt you know it was it was uh it was like the wild it was the wild west but it was the wild east it was um uh, anything any, it was anything went anything goes berlin i love berlin because, because of that it's uh it's New York City with the dark side, you know. And um, I lived in New York for a long time. It's a real, uh, it's a wonderful European metropolis, Berlin. I just, uh, I think it's probably one of my favorite cities in the world. It's, uh, it's just got so much energy there, and uh, history. The streets are huge. They're so wide, and you know, I I, I went—I forget the name of the restaurant. It was up high up in a building, and we were looking down on those avenues, and I could just see—they were that's where they pull all those tanks through there, you know, yeah. those those uh, World War II films of uh, you know Nazis walking marching down these streets. It's incredible! It's incredible. I don't—I'm uh, glad I got to see it in person. That's what's so great about traveling is. Uh, has been for me as a musician, and entertainer, to see the entire world in person, and like standing in front of the Mona Lisa as opposed to seeing a textbook for all well, the years I did when I was a kid.
1: One of the uh, special songs for me of "Lust for Life" is "Fall in Love with Me." So uh-huh. uh, that's known as um, the band swapping instruments,
2: right? Well, I had this, uh, I had this guitar lick that I start the song with, and uh, I had it for some time. And it um, it sort of reminded me of a of a sort of a a, a Berlin uh, sort of a Marlena Dietrich movie kind of ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, You know that thing. And so I started doing that lick, and uh, my brother ran over and picked up the bass and started playing. And uh, it was uh, Rick Gardner that uh, got up on the drums and started playing drums. And and we just started having a good time. You know that was a great album to record. Because we were just uh, let loose in the studio, David uh, enjoyed that. It was I loved working with him because of that. Because he he was uh, really enjoyed not knowing what was going to happen. Mm. I mean, he was just he would go whatever was whatever it was, just go for it. And we usually got it on the first or second take because of that. So we, so the three of us were were not playing our base, our, our foundation instruments, and uh, it came out real good. And Carlos Alomar was there. He he slapped on a slide guitar, and uh, uh, it was fun. It was fun.
1: How did um, David and Iggy work in the studio together? Were, were they a, a natural harmony in terms of ideas, or were they bouncing off each other?
2: Yeah, they. Yeah, it was. They, they had a uh, they had their own rapport going. I of um, course I stayed out of their connection. You know, I I mean, Mm. they they had an apartment there that we that we visited, but uh, they had their rapport going, and they seemed to just get along real real fine. There was no uh, trouble whatsoever. I mean, of course, there's always going to be disagreements, but I didn't see any on that project. There were no arguments, no disagreements. It was sort of like, hey, that sounds great. Let's go with it. Let's do this. That's fine. Let's go here. Let's do this. And it was like everybody was just creating. It was uh it was a, a great a creative uh process and uh, it felt very free. And that's exactly what it felt like with Tin Machine as well, with David. Yeah. I mean most of the sets were uh improvised, you know. We 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 would have a set list that we would generally go turn over and go backwards with, but we mm. It was just whatever went, went. So no two shows were alike, you know, which made it exciting for us. And uh, that's how it was uh, with Lust for Life. Uh, Jimmy would come in with uh, notes for lyrics and ideas for songs that he had already. But, uh, you know, once you put three or four musicians together and everybody's throwing in their chops and their ideas, things change a little bit. But the basis of uh, most of the songs uh, were written by Iggy uh, and uh, or and Gardner and Sales Brothers. We did uh, Fall In Love With Me. I wrote that with Iggy and the other guys.
1: for life sales weren't as good as they should have been at the time and some say that that was affected by Elvis's death and RCA's focus on that
2: yeah absolutely absolutely yeah we were actually on I think I believe we were on tour at that point and um, we, or we just started a couple of gigs and and somebody came to me and said you know they're selling all Elvis records at the store and I, I didn't see any lust for life and I, I got really pissed off and I said you know, don't I don't want to see any promo guys from RCA coming in here because that's that's just not acceptable. We I mean, we all got nuts about it because uh, it had just come out. I mean, okay, it was uh, you know he was uh, he was a big deal, but uh, we had a, a project that just had come out, and they just went right into the uh, sensationalism of pressing all Elvis <laughs> records. I mean, how many Elvis records can you have? I mean, you know, so so it uh, it did put a damper on it, I believe. But it's it's still uh, shown through with uh, "Lust for Life." That uh, that track really in itself uh, kicked ass a lot. I mean, people uh, just took up with the album right away. I mean, I think it's one of the best rock records ever made myself. Yeah. I don't. Uh, I mean, you might know why I think that. But you know. well, uh,
1: here here in the UK, especially in the the 1990s, with train spotting. That uh, lust for life, the, the track yeah. getting back into yeah. the chats. Ever since then, it's just built and built, and that's one of the great things about the uh, next year's tour is that we get to hear that music live. Yeah,
2: that's oh, uh, uh, but the, uh, the yeah. twenty in twenty three. I'd like to do as much of it as, as we can. i said in the in the release, you know, I'll be I'll play the entire lust for life album and we'll do what we can. You know, unfortunately, Rick, yeah. Garner passed away just a few weeks ago which I'm so sorry about. I hadn't seen him in a long time. And I guess he, he wasn't well for a while. But he was such a great guy, uh, such a great creative guitarist. It was fun to work with him. He'll be missed. But uh, but Kevin, uh, too, is a great uh, player and very creative. And I'm looking forward to uh, working with him on this project. Kevin worked with us with Tin Machine for a little bit. And uh, we had a good time. You were recording music in your teens, and uh... yeah, I started when I was twelve. Wow! You know, and uh, actually, I was—I was thinking about that when about whether I would talk to you about it. It's you know, I—I I mean, I started my first session was when I was twelve, and uh, we had a band called Tony and the Tigers. The guy that uh, produced Woodstock was my first producer, Artie Cornfeld. And he was there and, and, uh, yeah, he, he, he calls me every once in a while. You know, he just called me a couple of months ago and said, Hey, sales, how you doing? You know, it's your buddy, Artie. It, he, he's a great guy and, uh, really great. He, I mean, he's written like 250 different songs, like really big tunes that, uh, I was looking at. I look, look at Artie Cornfeld online. You'll see all the things that he's written. Mm. I mean, I think Dead Man's Curve was one of them, you know, but for Jan and Dean. But he was my first producer. Yeah, we got a, we got signed by Morris Levy, oh, at Roulette Records, oh. <laughs> which <laughs> which a say, hey, that's pretty scary. Yeah, and we walked walked into his office and said, right, I'm going to give you guys uh, Velvet Collins with some uh, on your <laughs> suits, and you're going to have like uh, a Beatles thing. I said, oh yeah, gee, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny.
1: You had some regional hits with Tony and the Tigers, didn't you?
2: We we had, yeah, times the best time for making love was the tune that we cut. I was singing, I had a, uh, I forget his name, yeah, a black singer was with me and uh, who sounded fantastic and uh, he was doing the harmony with me. It was Artie Kornfeld and uh, Hugo and Luigi productions were involved and Hugo and Luigi were like, you know, they were back with uh, the Elvis days wow. and Sam Cooke and those guys, you know. But Artie Kornfeld was the one that produced the, the track. And I hadn't been in the studio before. That was my first time in the studio. Summertime is the best time
0: for making
2: love.
0: Summertime is the best time for making love. When the sun goes down and the moon comes out. walking hand in hand writing love letters in the sand summertime is the best time for making love summertime is the best time to hold the tight. when the sky is blue and the stars are shining bright summer days Serving, swimming, and romance Summertime is the best time for making a love
2: A
1: few years after that, you linked up with Todd Rundgren. So how how did you get to know each other?
2: Well, we, uh, we had a friend, uh, Hunt and I had a friend that uh, was involved with Granny Takes a Trip in England, oh. uh, at Clothiers. And uh, Todd used to wear all that stuff that he would get from Granny Takes a Trip. and And so... Uh, his name was Andy Jansen. He said to me one day, he said, listen, I want to introduce you to a guitar player I think you'd really dig. His name is Todd Rundgren, and he's going to be at this uh, club called Steve Paul's Scene tonight, and I think you and Hunt should come down. I said, oh, of course, cool. so what, what, like nine 10 o'clock? I said, no, no. come about two or three in the morning. I said, two or three in the morning? <laughs> he said, yeah, you know, it's going to be a, that's when the, the real crowd shows up there. So I said, cool, Well, we'll be there. You know, now, we were in school at the time, so we just cuts we like split and I didn't tell anybody where we were going and we went down downtown to this club and we walked in and uh, we met Todd there and we noticed that the audience that night there was like I'd say about you know 50 60 people in the audience the audience was Jimi Hendrix the guys from Led Zeppelin Van Morrison and I forget I, I forget who else but I mean that was the that was the clientele, you know, it blew my mind. I thought, well, how did I get here? <laughs> so Todd and, and Hunt and I got up on, they had like a, a stage that was pallet height. So, you know, about a, a half a foot high, we, we got up on stage and we started playing and jamming and, uh, it sounded really good. It's, uh, and so that was the beginning. So a couple of weeks after that, Hunt and I had moved back out to Los Angeles We got a call from Todd. He said, listen, I'm coming out to Los Angeles to do my first solo album. I'd like you and Hunt to do it with me. And I said, dude, cool. That's great. So we came out and we did it at a studio called ID sound where ID stood for Ivan David, the owner's name. It was on La Brea in Los Angeles and we uh, went in and cut the uh, Runt album and uh, yeah, but Todd was a really good songwriter. I really enjoyed working with him too. A big hit. With, we've we got to get you a woman as well. We got to get you a woman was a, a top top forty hit. Yeah, I mean it's a real classic tune. This this room actually, the Beach Boys used to use this room to record it in. But we we cut uh, we got to we got to get you a woman there, and uh, a lot a lot of the tunes that that were covered by. Uh, uh, other people, the Isley brothers, we cut them in, in that room. That was a fun experience. We were very young. I mean, I was, I was, uh, I had just turned 17 when I played bass on that, and Hunt was uh, 15 playing drums on that one. It was, uh, we were young. Yeah, guys. Leroy, boy, is that you?
0: thought your post hanging days were through sunken eyes and full of size tell no lies you get wise i tell you now friend. You say how and I'll say when. Come and meet me down the street. Take a seat. It's my dream.
1: and those first few albums of Todd's are, are labeled as Todd's now but actually you, you were a band runt weren't you
2: well we we yeah uh, we were calling the band runt but uh you know as as much as uh, he had been, had the naz before and that broke up but uh so we did the album and we we traveled to new york and played the bottom line in new york and uh did some other gigs so uh, in essence it was a a band but uh we see. We did uh, the run album, then the ballad of Todd Rundgren, and then something, anything. We played on a track called "Slut," the yeah, S L U T. She may be a slipper, she looks good to me. That was that was the verse. And how true. Um, and I we see. We started uh, Utopia with Todd. We we went to New York. We we came back to New York from Los Angeles, and uh, back up to Woodstock, New York and uh albert grossman was still alive at that point he he managed god uh, the albert grossman that managed dylan and yeah. uh, Peter paul and mary and uh, everybody and uh, so they had built this studio in uh, woodstock and uh, we rehearsed in this studio and uh, rehearsed for uh, uh, the first days with utopia that we put together we all had, uh, we got our hair colored like a Bowie, and we did the whole space thing. And I, I was in New York City. And, uh, you know, I was walking down Lexington, or I forget which where it was. But uh, I saw that there was a new shop opening up and said Norma Kamali and i went down into the store and i was norma kamali she's a huge designer now i mean i, I went to, i was her first customer i went in yeah. and ordered uh i said can you make some suits for my band and she made us these uh, suits uh, these uh, spandex suits with wings on them and a the whole thing it, it was uh, ridiculous but it was funny we wore we wore those with space helmets and a whole thing i mean it was uh, it was, uh it was a trip. Everybody broke up and fell on the floor. You know, it was really funny. But she was, uh, I was her first uh, client. And then we just started doing gigs. You know, so we did about 12 gigs and it was over. I think we played Cleveland and Detroit and, you know, the big cities with the band, but it didn't uh, it didn't go anywhere. He, then Todd had uh, A Wizard of True Star came out. And then he went back to uh, doing his solo career. And then subsequently put, utopia together some other guys you know which was fine
0: sugar in that water was enough to revitalize me and that coke syrup there that was in that glass and the saccharine oh i'm sorry fans yeah, but i balked for a sleeping. moment but i'll go all night if you want me to go all night. just throw money throw money ready I decided right now I'm changing the name of the album to Throw Money, okay? A one, a two, a one, two, three.
1: So when did Iggy and James Williamson come onto the scene? Because you uh, played a, a few tracks on on the album that eventually got released as uh, Kill City.
2: Yeah, we well, like I, I think I said earlier, I was uh, I'm friends with James Williamson. So James and I were hanging out, and he said, "Listen, I'm doing a, I'm gonna do some tracks with Iggy. Do you want to? You and him want to come down and do something?" I said, "Sure, man." So we went. Oh, I forget what, st- what studio it was, but we met them. And uh, did uh, sell your love and sell your love and uh, lucky monkeys. Uh, yeah, lucky lucky monkeys. we were, were lucky monkeys, uh, lucky monkeys, and uh, sell your love and uh, it was a few a few songs, you know. And that was the first time that we had uh, gone to the studio with Iggy and really hung out with him. It was I was, I, you know, it was just James and I were hanging out before. But now i brought hung into the fold with this and um, stuff sounded good. So that was the last time we heard of it. And because we, had re- it was released a long time after we recorded it. I mean, a long time afterwards. So it's uh, the rest is, uh, as they say, history. Yeah.
1: It said that uh, Iggy at the time, you know, was overcoming addiction and, and was in the hospital in the week and recording at weekends. Was that the
2: case? Well, I actually, I don't remember that because I was out of my mind too, but I don't, I don't, you know, I don't really remember that. I, I was a uh, bad, bad uh, addict alcoholic, and uh, uh, I'm I've been in recovery for almost 39 years, so I it's been a long time since I've had a drink, uh, but or anything else for that matter. But uh, I, I, you know, I don't. I think we were all pretty nuts at that point, but I, I don't remember precisely what Jimmy was doing. You know nobody no one came to the studio and said okay get into the wagon uh into the black mariah man you know but i you know i understood that he he had a problem as well
1: the mid 80s you'd moved away from music
2: was that the case um well i did the um i, I worked with uh, jimmy and uh, uh i did some other stuff i put a band together with harry dean stanton hmm. and skunk baxter and uh called the cheap dates and we played the troubadour and a bunch of places in los angeles around los angeles and uh we recorded a uh, an ep I think you can get it online, I I believe. I've, I've, I think that's the last time I saw it. But uh, since, Harry has passed on. But uh, it was some good stuff. I had a band with him for a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I got out of, uh, and after that, I decided to uh, just, uh, I, I moved, uh, I have a couple of kids. So I moved uh, out to uh, Thousand Oaks here in California in, in an area called uh, Malibu Lake. And I said, to hell with it. I don't want to, I don't want to perform. It. I just got, it was over the egos and over the games and all the stuff. And I thought, yeah, to hell with it for the time being. So I just uh, started working as a carpenter. And I was doing that for a while. And uh, you do that, though. That has its own uh, group of uh, misfortunes that come with it. You know, like you cut off a finger while you're using a skill saw. I yeah. didn't myself, but my guy right next to me did he cut like three fingers off and I thought I can't afford to do that you know I can't do that act. and but I stepped back off of the ladder one time and a nail went right through my mm-hmm. foot I mean I thought I don't this isn't actually the <laughs> vocation I want to go with you know I, I'm gonna get back to music <laughs> it's a lot less damaging <laughs> now that I'm sober and I you know and I'm not putting nails on my feet it could be good so linking up with David Bowie
1: was just perfect timing then.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Well, you know, God's got that perfect timing, man. I mean, it's you know, it seems like it takes a long time. But that's because he's so old. Yeah, it's, it's it was always uh, it was, actually it was funny. It was always perfect timing with David. I mean, we ran in, ran into each other uh, the second time. Now, I get well, maybe that was yeah the second time before Tin Machine. I ran. Into, uh, someone told me a friend. I was out one night, one Saturday night, and the guy said, "You know, David's going to be down at at the so-and-so club tonight, uh, having a rap party for the last Spider two. And I said, oh, "I didn't know anything about that." So I, I said, "Hell, I'm. It's too late. I'm going home." So I t- I started driving home. I thought, "No, go and say hi to him. Go say hi." So I drove by this place, and I walked downstairs. It was blasting music. Was going on. And it was, I was down in the basement of this place. It was packed full of people. And I looked over in the corner and and Bowie was crouched down sitting against the wall, like in deep thought. And I went up to him and I said, Hey man, what's what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, and, uh, and he went, Tony, Tony, hey, listen, I want, I want to talk to you. Tony, come on. So we left and we went back uh to his room and and started talking he said listen I, I want to put a band together i want you guys to do it with me you know i want to put a band together let's let's ruin music you know i said i'm ready so we uh about two weeks later we were in uh switzerland recording uh the first machine album he said i got this guitar player i want you to meet i met his uh his wife was working with me as a publicists on the road and 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 I and I heard this tape and this guy's really great. And I said, cool. That's great. So yeah, you'll like him. And uh, so we we met him uh the first day at uh, the studio uh what's his name was Montreux? It was, it was the studio that the uh that the song Born on the, on the Water. Yeah, yeah. That was written about that studio that Frank Zappa burned down. You know, so they rebuilt the studio. So we got to the studio and uh, we went into in through the control room and, and looked down. It was a huge room. It was a casino and they moved all of the casino uh, equipment out. And we recorded in the uh, Mont- Montreux Casino there was was the studio. That's where we did the first Tin Machine album. That's why it sounds so big. It was a, it's like playing in an airplane hangar. And uh, my brother, who slams the drums harder than anyone I've ever heard in my life, yeah, you know, it was that uh, was a good time. It was a that was a good uh, those were good sessions. And we just really got pissed off because we kept telling him what to play. <laughs> and then it actually was hot. Kept telling him, it was funny. It said that
1: heavens in here was the the first track that uh, you rehearsed to yeah. put down. Is that the case?
2: The first track we we cut. Yeah, it was the first thing we played. Uh, yeah, Reeves just started the lake out, and then I I came in. Yeah, it was the first one. And I mean, as I recall, we cut all of those. We caught We wrote and recorded thirty six songs in six weeks. I mean, it was just one right after another, one right after another, and it kept going. I mean, this there is still a tin machine album in the can. Yeah. I mean, it may be released at some point on something, but you know, I don't know. It's the David's estate is in charge of that. Uh, but there's some good stuff that hasn't been released. And it was pretty wild. Great. That group was amazing. It was pretty wild. I enjoyed that a lot. Just the improvisational aspect of it. it was so much fun as a musician. It was it was never the same twice. I mean, some people don't like that, but I happen to love it. So it was, it was great. I mean, jazz is uh, one of my favorite musics, and, and uh, if not the number one. Uh, and then R&B and everything else after that. Like, uh, uh, I Can't Read uh, is a good reflection of uh, my taste in music that we did with Tin Machine. I mean, that particular song, uh, every performance was completely different. It was, it was some really exciting shows with that one and some some night- nightmares with others. But uh, it's...
1: Yeah, you're talking about that improvisational process. Was that what led to some of the material on both albums, including one shot of Tin Machine 2, that you all wrote.
2: Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was that, it was that creative, uh, I mean, I don't know what anyone calls it, but it's that God spark or whatever it is. You don't know when it comes, but when it comes, it's there. I mean, when, when it's happening, it's happening. I mean, I've, I've seen uh, Bob Dylan talk about that same thing in interviews. He said, the guy said, you, you know, you don't write those same kind of songs, says, I don't know where those songs came from. He said, I don't know how I wrote those songs. I just, it's that thing comes and uh, who knows why, why do you get five? It's funny. You get five guys together and they can be like nothing. And then you get another five guys together and they're rolling stones. mean it doesn't make any, you know, who knows what makes it, what the magic comes from. And it's a combination of everybody's uh, unifying in the studio, I think, and just uh, letting their guards down. And uh, it's a lot of trust a lot of uh, i don't know if it always it's a conscious decision but uh it's uh being being vulnerable in the studio with people is uh is an experience you know it's it's sort of akin to getting on stage in in front of 20 000 people i mean you know it's it's like you get your clothes off in front of 20 000 people but um that, that's why i've uh been in the uh entertainment area all you know 58 years i've been playing i mean i uh it's there's nothing more exciting than that from me yeah the only thing more exciting than it actually was my delivering my own son yeah. that was more exciting <laughs> but uh yeah you know uh it's uh i've uh i've had a, a, an interesting life it's it's been good it's been good and I've had my difficulties too. You know, they found me. Uh, I was found dead in my car with a stick shift through my chest in 1979. Uh. And I remained in a coma for a month at the Cedars Sinai Hospital here in Los Angeles. Some people say I never came out of that coma, but I, I did. But uh, uh, you know, you you uh, I, I you just go on no matter what.
1: Machine, it's it seems unfairly maligned in some quarters. When actually, certainly artistically, it was a, a success, and and actually, it steered David onto a new course and revitalized his career as well.
2: Yeah. I, yes. I absolutely, I, I absolutely uh, agree with that. I mean, uh, you know, David, uh, you know, he had in, he got sucked into a slot that I don't think intentionally he wanted to go with. You Know, but things are so fast paced and exhausting when you're on the road. I mean, he was on the road for, I mean, how you know, what 45 years, you know, and and I think you lose sight, one can lose sight of uh, yeah. when you know, like uh, you got to watch where you're going because you're surely going to arrive where you're headed. It gets difficult. Uh, I think that he lost direction for himself, and uh, I think that we helped be a catalyst to, for him to find another. Direction, which was his as well. Uh, you know, I think we all, you know, all of our friends do that for us. I think all, a lot of a lot of friends do that for for all of us. Uh, that's what it, to me what a friend is. Someone says, "Hey, hold on a sec. You know, my, you might want to look at this." To being rigorously honest with oneself is the most difficult. Hmm. That's the practice that that I like to look at. That, that's where I want my calluses. Yeah. So, but I, but I. From what you asked, I believe that, that it did uh, give him a spark. You know, I mean, he'd, uh, he'd gotten together with Reeves and they had come up with a couple of uh, things. And the two of them uh, decided they wanted to call uh, the Sales Brothers. So then we got Sales Brothers over to Switzerland. And, we, and who knew what would come up? But it happened. I don't think... At the beginning, the, the initial meeting, I don't think my brother and uh, and Reeves got along too well, but because it's probably because my brother had a knife in his belt and a, and a T-shirt on, said, uh, fuck you, I'm from Texas. So that right there was not a real great introduction, but uh, they they worked beyond that <laughs> and and went into the studio anyway, you know, and uh, it was funny. We, used to, we all used to break up about all of that stuff. Even reads, I think.
1: <laughs> Before we close, it's just worth just mentioning again the forthcoming tour next year, covering uh, Lust for Life and, and other tracks. Right. And uh, the, the website to get that information is TonyFoxSalesTour.com. But um, what material are you looking forward to playing live?
2: Well, I'm looking forward to playing this stuff from uh, Lust for Life, but there'll be some other uh, Iggy Pop songs in there, uh, you know, we don't have a set list as of yet. We haven't even uh, been in the same room together, all of us. But Kevin and I have talked about it, and uh, uh Florence uh, Sebeva. And but I know once we once we do meet and we we start playing, we'll uh, democratically come up with some stuff. I mean, I, it, my name is there, but I'm not uh, I'm not boss. You know what I mean? I I, I, don't, I mean, I'm allergic to boss really. You know, I, I'm looking forward to working with some musicians I haven't met before. And and though I have seen their work online and I'm really very impressed, it's just, it's exciting. Every time I get together new musicians, it's like a new birth. It's uh, And it's 70 years old. You know, it, it feels good.
1: Uh, Tony, what a pleasure it is to talk to you today. I want to thank you for asking me again. I'm looking forward to, to seeing you and the group live next year. It promises to be an incredibly memorable tour and uh, series of shows. And uh, I wish you all the best in preparation for that and uh, on on the uh, evenings
2: themselves. So thank you. Well, Jason, thank you so much, man. You're very sweet and and, uh, very kind. And I look forward to seeing you at the gigs. I'll be there. I'm looking forward to coming. I haven't been to uh, uh, London since 91. I'm looking forward to coming back.
1: All right. Bye-bye.
2: Well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. Adios.